Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Germany Elects, a special world review podcast series on the German election from the New Statesman. I'm Jeremy Cliff the international editor of The New Statesman, and there's now only three and a half weeks to go until Election Day, September 26th. In this third episode of Germany Elects, I'll be looking at the rising support for the centre-left Social Democrats, the SPD, and their candidate for Chancellor, Olaf Scholz. Scholz is a good candidate in the sense that, of course, he has a lot of government experience, um, this is something that German voters are looking for. That's the political scientist Tariq Abushadi. And I'll be asking what an SPD-led government might mean for Germany and Europe, including on the all-important question of economics. Olaf Scholz is the former mayor of Hamburg, a city that's doing incredibly well economically in Germany, and he wasn't exactly known for being a radical left-winger. Philippa Siegel-Gluckner, who'll be joining me later in the episode. Here's Gerhard Schröder, Angela Merkel's immediate predecessor as Chancellor, in a 2002 TV ad asking Germans to vote for his SPD. This was the last time the party came first in a federal election. Angela Merkel subsequently came to power in 2005, and since then, the SPD has struggled to reassert its distinct identity and recapture Germany's political centre. Yet now, 19 years after the party's last win, and with Merkel stepping down, it looks like that might just be changing. The SPD's TV ads this time sound like this. There is much we have achieved. Now our job is to do much more. To make that happen, I'm fighting for a 12 euro minimum wage so that 10 million workers earn more, for 400,000 new homes every year to make housing affordable again, for stable pensions and climate protection. That's why I'm asking you for your vote, a vote for a good future. And that's why I want to serve our country as Chancellor. That's Olaf Scholz, the SPD's Chancellor candidate. He serves as Merkel's vice-chancellor and finance minister in her outgoing coalition government. You can read my in-depth profile of him, along with all our German election coverage, at newstatesman.com Germany. Until recently, it seemed unlikely that Scholz would replace Merkel. But that's now changing. Since the last episode of Germany elects two weeks ago, the SPD has risen from just under 19% to just over 23% in our New Statesman poll tracker. 
That may not sound like much, but in a tightly bunched race, it's taken the party from third place to first, overtaking first the Greens and now the CDU-CSU, Merkel's Christian Democrat political alliance. We saw part of the explanation for this in the first three-way TV debate of the campaign, hosted by the private broadcasters RTL and NTV on August 29th. Here's Armin Laschet, the CDU-CSU candidate, and Annalena Baerbock of the Greens, clashing over a green proposal to redistribute carbon tax revenues directly to citizens. 75 euro per person, gerade Familien. That's 75 euros per person. So, for example, a four-person family would get four times 75 euros back, and then over the next years, that would rise in line with the carbon price. Could you just explain how that would be done? You know what? It's so funny. You've been in power this whole time. Then on every issue... Mrs. Baerbock, sorry, but... You ask me how I would do things. Obviously, you haven't got a plan. It doesn't work. Yes, we do it like other countries. The energy payment has been introduced in Canada and Switzerland. Where Laschet and Baerbock were energetic and at points scrappy, Schultz played the placid statesman. Here he is on the same question about the costs of decarbonizing the economy. I think it's an industrial project, so we must ensure that it contributes to protecting our high level of prosperity and good jobs. This was already mentioned, but we have gradually introduced CO2 pricing. I'm for a moderate part. If, in those soothing generalisms, you can hear more than a hint of Angela Merkel, you're not mistaken. With the Chancellor stepping down, Scholz, experienced, moderate, reassuring, is styling himself as her natural successor. And with some polls now showing the SPD's lead growing and Scholz's personal popularity far higher than Laschet's or Baerbock's, it seems to be working, for now at least. Polls taken immediately after the debate deemed him the winner. The questions now are many. Can the SPD surge last? If so, can the party forge a coalition after the election? And if it manages that, what sort of government would it lead? Well, regular listeners to the World Review podcast may recognise our first guest in this week's episode. He is one of the sharpest observers on social democracy in Europe and someone who I think cuts through a lot of the cliches and misunderstandings about the difficulties facing European social democratic parties. He's also something of an expert on the SPD. So I'm very pleased to welcome uh, once again to a World Review podcast and for the first time to Germany Lex. Tariq Abishadi, who is the newly arrived Associate Professor in European Politics at Nuffield College, Oxford. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me again. So the first question, I suppose, is let's just review the last few days. Did you did you watch the TV debate and what, what were your thoughts about that? Yes, I, of course, watched the debate and I thought it was pretty interesting. It was quite different from the last election campaigns where there were a lot of more rules and so there was more open debate. I thought that I was most surprised by Annalena Baerbock, actually, who had had a couple of very rough weeks and not great interviews. And I think she did really well. She placed a lot of good points. She could establish herself as the opposition candidate versus the other two. And then Olaf Scholz, of course, also did very well and came out as the winner in the polls, which you shouldn't take too seriously. But still, I think he's really placing himself as the Merkel successor candidate, which is a good thing in the current environment. I wonder how much the strong polling that he got immediately afterwards was a reflection of prior perceptions of him or his actual performance in the in the debate. I wonder how much of it had been baked in at the start. 
I think that's a good point. It's very difficult to tell, but usually the expectations for him were higher and people are like him at the moment. So then obviously they will also look at him more favorably. So this, this kind of polling is really not so reliable. But of course, then it has a big effect because what happens the next day is that all newspapers, all news TV shows pick that up, declare him the winner. And m most people who will not have seen the debate then, of course, get this signal that he won the debate and right. uh, is on good track. Right. I tweeted out the front cover of the Bild uh, tabloid newspaper, Germany's Germany's biggest paper yesterday, which declared him the clear winner, which is which is quite something coming from a, a right of center tabloid. By the way, I also felt I agree with you that it was it was a lot better than the 2017 debate, which was very staid and didn't really shed much light. I thought, given that on this podcast, we've sometimes talked about the issues that don't get discussed enough in German election campaigns and the, 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 the debates that don't get aired. I thought it was a relatively decent run through the important issues and in, including foreign policy with which it began, which was quite nice to see in, with regard to some of pre the previous conversations we've had on this podcast. So that's just a little sidebar. Let's, let's broaden it out a bit. The SPD are rising in the polls. We've had one that even puts them on 25% to the CDU, CSU's 20%. That's pretty astonishing stuff. First of all, what do you make of that? And secondly, how much do you think it's that the others are making mistakes and that the SPD is just lucky? And how much do you think that the SPD is actually doing something right? So I was, of course, also surprised by this development to a certain degree. I mean, this campaign has been very volatile and we've seen a lot of ups and downs in the polls. But now I think you can really say that there is this momentum, if you want to call it like that, for the SPD. They're, I would say they're now tied in the polls with the CDU, which... Two months ago, no one would have thought could happen, except for many people in the SPD who were, who were actually convinced that this would happen. So you have to give them credit for that. It's difficult to explain these short-term changes, but I would say you can look at the relationship to the last election. And so now the SPD is polling around the same results, maybe two or three more percentage points over the previous election results. The two big changes are that the CDU-CSU is doing very, very poorly. It's more than 10% less than in the last election. And also the Greens are doing very well. And so this is changing the whole dynamic, of course, of how those 22, 23% of the SPD look, because this means they could lead a government eventually. And ironically, this is the result of mostly the Greens gaining a lot of ground in the past two to three years. And then also the CDU doing really poorly. So this is just a, it's a very different constellation with a quite similar result. Do you think that Schultz has been particularly lucky in the choice of Armin Laschet as the CDU candidate? Yeah, I think you have to say it like that. I mean, also Schultz is a good candidate uh, mm -hmm. in the sense that, of course, he has a lot of government experience. Um, this is something that German voters are looking for. And this is, I think, the biggest struggle for Annalena Baerbock. But then... Yes, I mean, Laschet has had a really, really bad campaign and it's like has arrived in this spiral where basically everything he says is not taken very seriously. He's been made a lot of fun of and this is just not where you want to be as a candidate. By the way, I think I think the point you make about how different the overall landscape is, 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 is very striking. I mean, while researching my profile piece on Olaf Scholz, I was looking back at the, the, the SPD's historical election results and it's pretty striking that Gerhard Schröder in 2005 lost the chancellery on 34.2% of the vote, mm -hmm. 
which of course is would be unfeasibly high even for the SPD kind of riding high as it is now. A, a couple of other things that came up in that in that research, which I'd like to put to you, and these were from people in the SPD or close to Scholz, who were saying, yes, Laschet's been very weak. Yes, Baerbock has had some difficulties in the last month or so, but he's doing certain things right. Particularly, he's managed to unify the party. So he's there's a sort of there's a degree of common cause that spans Scholz and the moderates, and also the party left, people around Kevin Cunard, for example, a sort of star of the kind of more radical wing of the party. Um, and secondly, that he's come up with, or the party has come up with some quite strong, clear-cut policies, for example, increasing the minimum wage to 12 euros an hour. And their argument is that, yes, he's been fortunate in some senses, but he's also made his own luck. Uh, do you buy that? Let me maybe say one more thing on the changing party landscape mm-hmm. and then I'll, I'll move over to Schultz. I think the really interesting change is that com- compared to 1998, the big Schröder win in 1998, the left bloc in Germany, so the Greens, the SPD and the left party, their share of the vote has decreased in every election since, but now will increase a lot, probably 7-8% now in the polls compared to the le- last election. Mm-hmm. So there's been a shift in the distribution of power in the whole system. And this is, of course, the necessary component for any candidate of the SPD to make a, a serious claim for leading a government is this change in the overall distribution of power in the, in the German party system. Right. Now to, to Schultz, I think that's right. I think the, the SPD has pacified its very fragmented base and activist base by changing shifting to the left to more progressive policies really with these candidates that kind of signal a more on the one hand a more traditional left-wing outlook with one of the party leaders and a more progressive outlook with with the other and then what they managed to do is kind of present Scholz as this very centrist candidate that can appeal to voters in the center but on the other hand the party has been pacified a little bit with this new party leadership that is decidedly more left-wing so Mm. compared to for example when Frank-Walter Steinmeier and Per Steinbrück the last chancellor candidates of the SPD were also very centrist when they ran it was clear that they didn't really have the support of the party and it was always a bit this big rift between the candidate and other figures in the party and that we haven't seen in the last year and a half. One of the most common lines that I've heard from SPD people recently is, we all thought it was going to be a real problem that the party leadership was on the left and the party candidate was on the centre, but it's actually turned out to be a strength because the whole party has a certain sense of ownership of the candidacy and of the programme, which is which is counterintuitive. Yeah, I think this is only working because there is no incumbent running. This mm. because because of this, it's so focused now on those three candidates, and Schultz can really get the points home for being the strongest of these three contenders. And focus is a little less on policies, for example. So I think it's working out really well because Schultz is well placed in this field of the three candidates, and because there's no incumbent running, this plays out. This has a bigger impact on how people will vote in September. Right. I think the lack of incumbent is a driver of unpredictability in this election campaign more generally too. It makes it a lot more fluid. Talking of the lack of incumbent, it's been written, including by myself, that that Scholz has tried to position himself as something of a a replacement Merkel or the kind of the Merkel figure in the in this election campaign. And that that's part of the reasons for his success. Do you think that's true? And and how does it relate to that shifting political landscape? Because even if there are certain personal similarities, 
you know, if, if the bigger picture is a shift of the balance of votes from the right of the centre to the left of the centre, I wonder if that entirely adds up. I think it is fair to say that he they're really p- trying to make him look like the next Angela Merkel. They're now using sentences and gestures that are very much associated with Angela Merkel. So it's nearly, it's nearly making a little fun or overdoing it in a way and so that shows that they're really not embarrassed in any way to be seen as this, uh, you know, in, in this association with Angela Merkel. And I think what's happened at the, at the level of the electorate is that there, we always knew that there's a share of rather centrist voters who have voted for the CDU because of Angela Merkel. And it was always clear that it these voters would be volatile, they'd be willing to switch to a different party once Angela Merkel is not running. So it would be clear that this potential would be up for grabs in an election. Those voters probably, it's difficult to tell at the moment, but probably have gone to two parties. On the one hand, they have gone to the Greens, where really the issue of climate change, but also generally a a demand for change, a different style of politics, has attracted a share of uh, former CDU voters. And now in the campaign, a share of them is probably going to the SPD because what really matters for them, what they really care about, is who's going to be the next chancellor. So they might be voting more on a candidate, on competence, on how they want to see a new government led and less maybe on specific policy positions. Just briefly, on those voters, I mean, we're talking what, sort of younger voters, sort of presumably more centrist voters, voters who are not particularly aligned or affiliated with any particular party. I mean, what what would you describe as the typical voter switching from the CDU to the SPD? I don't think they need to be particularly young voters because there is a German electorate that has always oscillated between the CDU and the SPD. And those are more the voters that would never vote for the Greens. And you can see this in also polls about preferences for chancellor, but also voting intentions, where this is more older voters. They right. really, they would vote for either the CDU or the SPD and really no one else. And there you could also say, well, after 20 years of one party, there's just a, you know, there's just a natural tendency for change at some point. This happens in all countries, right? After a certain time in government, people just want to see someone else. And then a party needs to come into that spot, the challenger party needs to come into that spot where they are seen as the main challenger for leading a government. And in the beginning of the year, especially around March, April, we thought this would would likely be the Greens. But then because of some mistakes that the Greens made, and especially Annalena Baerbock made, but then also the stronger position of Scholz and his experience, this shifted. And now he's more seen as this main challenger. And this can, I think this was, this is largely more older voters who are really picking that candidate. Well, you and I have often talked about the different ways European social democrats are dealing with their structural challenges. Many might be looking at Germany now from other parts of Europe, from the UK as well, maybe the US even, asking, are the lessons from the SPD's rise, from Scholz for the centre-left where we are. What do you say to that? It's a bit funny that within five weeks, we've now gone to what can other parties learn from the SPD, when over years, of course, the question was always the other way around. I, I reckon we're about, we're days away from the first Guardian op-ed on why Keir Starmer needs to learn from Olaf Scholz. But anyway, yes. we'll, we'll yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is certainly going to happen. So from a serious political science perspective, one election doesn't tell us a lot about these structural developments. 
And there are some structural problems that remain, especially the electorate of the SPD is very old. Among young voters, they have very little appeal. And this is a cohort change. This is not just age. This is younger cohorts turning away from the SPD, but also from the CDU to other parties, especially younger voters uh, are embracing the Greens. So there's a structural development, just to name one, that's moving away from the SPD um, based on age. The second thing is that, as we already said, the SPD hasn't gained so much, right? This will still be mm. one of their historically worst results. So they have positioned themselves well, and maybe this is something actually that other parties can learn, is your, that your strategy, of course, needs to be dependent on the party system environment that you're competing in and that maybe you don't have to compete for the spot of the, the strongest party at all if you have a, a plausible claim to lead a certain type of coalition hmm. um, and then this will affect these dynamics. Well, that brings us on to the final question, which was, it's quite clear now that Olaf Scholz's preferred coalition would be a so-called traffic-like coalition with the Greens and the conservative liberal Free Democrats. There are some in his party, particularly on the left, who would prefer to see a coalition with the, the left party, the Socialist Party mm-hmm. and the Greens. What's the broader picture of the sort of coalitions that are coming together in these more fragmented political landscapes around the centre-left, around the left, in other European countries? Are there any particular trends there? So the big trend is fragmentation, right? We just have many more parties that are somewhat successful between 8 and 15%. And in Western Europe, we barely have any party, except for the UK, polling over 30% at the moment. And of course, the the UK is different because of the electoral system. Yes, right. The first past the post just gets people to vote for one of the two parties usually. So this means that, of course, the options for coalitions become a lot more complicated. We have very few countries left where we really have this block competition, a left block versus a right block or so. And coalition negotiations become more difficult. In a way, this also means it becomes more difficult for voters to hold parties accountable. If I want to vote a party out of government, it becomes really difficult because if they have 8 or 15 percent, it might matter less when they're well-placed to be part of a a coalition ideologically. So we have a lot more options. And for Social Democrats, what we have seen is that it's really difficult when they have been the junior coalition partner, like in Germany, for example, where this has really hurt them. And in other countries where they could lead governments, Spain, Portugal, Denmark, they could really set their agenda. And with that, very different agendas between between Denmark and, and, and Portugal, but still they could be associated with a political idea That has helped them then to generate votes and to generate a new basis in this necessary repositioning at the moment. It's interesting that, you know, in in SPD circles, that there are interesting discussions about what would a sort of social green liberal coalition look like? What, what, What would the common project be? You know, where does that get us in terms of the long term future of German politics? And that's going to be something really interesting to watch. The coalitions will have very different outlooks if you compare the, the so-called traffic light to a more left block coalition. The, the big problem in the left block coalition will be foreign policy, where the left party wants to leave NATO or wants to reform NATO, has a very critical position toward the Bundeswehr being in, in, in any type of military conflict and so on. And with the FDP, the big conflict will, of course, be on economic issues, 
public spending, taxes, and so on. From the from the Greens and the SPD, I guess the ideal solution would be that the FDP could focus a little more on its other, more social liberal ideological outlook that is then concerned with more progressive domestic policy, actually, where the FDP and the Greens are much closer together than compared to the SPD. But this will this will cause a lot of uh, inner conflict within the FDP too, where you have these two wings, right? You've, you've described them as liberal conservative, which is certainly where the, the leadership is at the moment. But there are people in the FDP who are more this liberal progressive, a bit more like the Lib Dems in, in the UK maybe. And so there's also a wing there and people who stand for these positions. And they would be, of course, ideally placed to take on a stronger role in this coalition. It's going to be very interesting to watch. And indeed, it could end up taking quite a long time if there are so many different possible coalitions in play after the election. Um, Tariq, as ever, thank you so much for joining us and for your thoughts on this exciting time in German politics. Thank you, Jeremy. As a reminder, you can find our Germany poll tracker and all our German election coverage at newstatesman.com Germany. After the break. I think the pandemic has brought home that point sufficiently that there's quite a bit of investment that needs to be done. And on top of that comes climate change. Christian Ordendahl on the challenges an SPD government might face. We're offering a special discount on new subscriptions to The New Statesman for listeners to these podcasts. You can get 12 weeks for just £12, that's still about €14, Euros, by visiting newstatesman.com slash subscribe 12. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. Well, to go into a bit more depth about the 
SPD, social democracy in Germany, and some of the economic challenges that the country faces. I'm very pleased to be joined by two experts on all of those subjects. Philippa Siegel-Glöckner is the director of Dezernat Zukunft, a think tank here in Berlin. And Christian Ordendahl is the chief economist at the Center for European Reform. Welcome, Philippa. Thank you very much for having me, Jeremy. And welcome, Christian. Thank you for having me, too. So let's just start by taking stock of the campaign so far. Obviously, things have been going unexpectedly well for the SPD and for Olaf Scholz. We've talked already on this podcast about the TV debate. It's pretty clear that the the fight back from the CDU-CSU involves trying to promote the idea that the SPD will go into government with the the socialist left party in a so-called red-red-green government. Just before we go on to the longer term picture, I wonder if one or both of you would like to reflect on whether you think that might succeed, what the challenges are to the SPD in the in the, the final three and a half weeks of this campaign and, and, and kind of what the chances are that Scholz can get to election day still ahead of the rest. I mean, if anything, I think all of Scholz has been a pretty steady candidate. He's not one for huge surprises or, you know, who, who changes course massively. So I guess it's pretty likely that for the, for the remaining few weeks, he will do the same that he's always done. And hence, I really wonder whether there's going to be that much more movement. But then looking back at the campaign, you've got to be very careful to, to say that. Are you surprised at how other parties doing? Yes, I am. I guess there are very few people who are not surprised by that. But the main surprise for me is actually also how poorly Laschet in particular has done, you know, who's got quite a lot of government experience, I think, who's who's been exposed to quite quite fierce campaigns. So I guess that's, for me, the main surprising factor. What about you, Christian? I mean, Laschet's latest gambit involved an intervention by Angela Merkel yesterday, as we record this, endorsing the criticism of Olaf Scholz for not ruling out a deal with the left party. Do you think that might hit home? Well, I think it's a sign of desperation, both that they are trying what we call a Red Sox campaign. So basically painting the, the SPD as, as being in danger of, of forming coalition with the left. Could, could you briefly explain what you why, why, why Red Sox? It was at the time that I think it was 1998. That was particularly the time when the CDU tried to scare voters into believing that if they vote for the Social Democrats, then they would go into coalition with the, the left party, which was the PDS at the time. So the former, former communists. And also Angela Merkel's intervention. I think that's a sign of desperation. I think Angela Merkel wanted to stay out of this, but she's probably been, you know, encouraged by her party to finally intervene because the polling numbers are that bad. I remember when I looked at the polling at the start of this year, when the CDU was still in the high 30s and the SPD was polling at 15 or 14 percent even, that the voter potential of all three parties seemed to be, so the Greens, the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats, all seemed to be around 45 percent. So basically, 45% of German voters could imagine voting for the Social Democrats. But at the time, only 14% said they would do so. So there was always this, you know, this hope that the SPD would, would gain some of that vote from that, from that potential. And now that you know, Laschet is performing badly, Baerbock, the hype around the Greens has subsided a bit. I think what, what many people realize is that if they want some form of continuity, then probably Scholz is the closest they have in terms of character and sort of soberness and seriousness to Angela Merkel. And this is playing out now. Maybe just to add to that a little bit on the you know, whole question of, of credibility of a Red Sox campaign. I mean, Olaf Scholz is the former mayor of Hamburg, a city that's doing incredibly well economically in Germany. And he wasn't exactly known for being a radical left winger. So I think that just makes it very, very hard for that story to stick. 
Personally, I don't think it passes the, the smell test, as they say. There's a, there's a line from that other not very radical social democrat, Tony Blair. He talks about coming up with uh, attack lines on the various conservative leaders he faced. And he had this, this point where he said, you don't go for the attack lines that will win you applause at the Labour Party conference. Go for the attack lines that will get people in the street or in the pub nodding, things that seem credible. And I just... For me, the idea that Schultz is the vehicle for some radical left project, I wouldn't expect would get ordinary Germans nodding and saying, yeah, I can believe that. But we will we will see. Before we move on, does either of you think there's actually any chance of a, of a red, red, green government? It's, it looks pretty unlikely arithmetically and politically from where I am, but I wonder if either of you disagree. No, I fully agree. I actually think that, you know, NATO is a big sticking point. Schultz has made it very clear that he needs a firm commitment to that. But it goes, it goes even beyond that. I mean, on foreign policy, it's going to be very hard to agree and same probably on some economic questions. But I don't know, Christian, do you think differently? No, I would agree up to a point in that we would probably f- find ourselves in some kind of stalemate after this election because the CDU and the FDP probably want to form a coalition with the Greens at that point and the Social Democrats and the Greens would like to form a coalition with the Free Democrats. So one of the two parties, the Greens or the Free Democrats, will have to jump across the aisle. And I think at this point, we will be in a stalemate that cannot really be resolved. And the option of having such a red, red, green coalition may work as a threat at some point in this, in this debate, but I don't think it's, it's, a, it's a likely outcome or something that, that, that the Social Democrats really want. So I think it's, it's sort of a, if anything, it's a last resort before going to basically new elections. I'd like to come back to thoughts about the the next government uh, in a bit. But first of all, just to sort of zoom out and take in the bigger picture. Looking at Germany today, obviously, in many ways, it's a very successful country. But there's a bunch of issues which I would say militate for a sort of strong social democratic answers or answers from that part of the political spectrum, whether it's the lack of investment, wealth inequality, which is one of the highest in the OECD, a large low wage sector, issues like old age poverty, uh, competitive challenges to the economy. And the Social Democrats themselves have been in government for three out of Angela Merkel's four terms as Chancellor. So I'd like to just explore this question, first of all, by, by asking, how much do you think social democratic ministers in Merkel's governments have helped tackle those challenges and make Germany a fairer economy? The Social Democrats always went in as a junior partner, as a reluctant junior partner into these coalitions. And so they tried to get some of their of their main ideas at the time into the into the program, into the government's program then for the next four years. And I think there have been some successes. So and this is in part also uh, of course, Angela Merkel's political strategy to adopt some of the ideas of the opposition and take the sting off and then, um, you know, get, get them away from these ideas for the next election campaign. And I think it worked quite well uh, in terms of staying in power for the Christian Democrats. But I do think that the Social Democrats have had some successes under Merkel's, under Merkel's government. For example, the introduction of the minimum wage is one of those issues which coming out of the, the 1990s and then the labor market reforms of the early 2000s, was still very, very heavily opposed by the economics establishment at the time, by the conservatives, by businesses. And so, you know, getting some of those policies in place, I think that's a, that, that, that is an achievement for the Social Democrats over the last two coalitions with Angela Merkel. There are some other issues like family support policies, uh, parental support policies and so forth, all of which were not 
classic conservative policies, the SPD pushed and pushed and pushed. And um, at some point, the CDU adopted maybe not the, the full version, the full social democratic version of it, but some version of it. And so it took sort of the edges off of some of the conservative policies, I think. But just to add to that, and maybe I should say at this point that I was a finance ministry official before this, so working under an SPD minister, that you can see with many of the policies, you know, it, it was always a negotiation and the SPD, you know, always had to kind of, <laughs> I mean, could maybe push halfway, but was the junior partner. And that's what you can see. I mean, starting from the last coalition agreement where, I mean, the wording, even if you are a native German speaker, it's sometimes very hard to understand what it actually means because it's, it's such a difficult negotiation. And then same in, in the policies that, that came through. So, yeah, you can see a social democratic imprint, but it always had to be a negotiation and you always had to kind of come back at some point to or fall back to, in a way, what what is economically right. So, for instance, I think the minimum wage is an interesting one. I mean, yes, it, it got established, but, you know, it's been set by a commission that kind of, you know, scientifically agrees what the right level is. Whether that's possible or not is a different question, but it's not you know, set by policy and this is what we want society to look like and this is what we think is right. Rather, it's got to be a scientific outside commission to to set that. And I think that's exactly where you can see the, the limits of policy space that you have in that kind of grand coalition. There is a sense, you know, and you pick it up in the media here and elsewhere, that the economic debate in Germany has been changing over the past years. From outside of Germany, people are used to the idea that the debate here is very tethered to the old order liberal assumptions about the economy, very conservative on fiscal policy, very conservative on fiscal policy in the European Union too, and actually a block on a lot of the reform that would help the Eurozone work better. And, and yet there is, as I say, this sense that, that, that the economic debate is changing. Do you both buy that? Do you think that the German economics is moving in a more whatever you want to call it, open-minded, progressive, fiscally centrist direction? Or is that a flash in the pan? No, I think the debate is, has already moved quite a bit. It's in part, I think, just the empirical assessment of the last 10 years. 10 years ago, people were thinking we're going to be in an endless public debt crisis, that inflation was the risk and so forth. And uh, none of them came, came to being. So it's uh, particularly in the in, in the German debate, I think there's a bit of a reassessment of, of of the priorities. There's a generational change among economists who you know may not be educated in the sort of traditional German auto liberal view and have more international empirical education and, and and scientific training, and 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 they are starting to dominate the debate, and that of course does change the debate. So I think there 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 really has been a shift, but until that shift really fully works its way through business establishments, in, in the press even, or, you know, among among policymakers, that does take a bit of time. So we're not, we're, we haven't made this transition in full yet, I think, but the signs are clear that there's, that there's been quite a bit of a change. You could see that in, I think, in the, in the establishment of the recovery fund, of course, it was a once in a lifetime, hopefully, um, crisis during which that happened, but it was very bold and it was uh, it was very big for. By this, you mean the next generation EU fund? Yes, of course, exactly the European fund, and that was not something that was sort of a European or French idea that was pushed on Germany. It was a 
a broad coalition of German economists from, from various institutions and, and I think I would say political backgrounds making that case early on that this is needed. And it was Germany that was was leading this uh, the establishment of that recovery fund. So I think there is you, you can already see the see the signs. Other signs, for example, are that I think f- by now three years ago, probably four years ago, the trade union research institute and the German Industry Research Institute, so basically two think tanks with a, with a clear political leaning, joined forces for a joint paper on spending 450 billion over the next 10 years in public investment and modernizing infrastructure and, and public administration and so forth. I know by international standards, it doesn't sound really big. I remember telling American economists about this and they looked at me and say like, but that's peanuts. Okay, but for the German debate, I think having such a broad consensus between trade unions and businesses about the investment needs and, and that public debt may not be the main issue. Uh, I think that is a change uh, that, that will work its way into the, into the political debates and already has done to some extent. What do you think, Philippa? Because your, your think tank's been, you know, even in the last months, involved in debates about reforming the debt break. Do you see some movement? Um, yeah, I do see a lot of movement in the debate. I think the debate over the last four years has changed massively and a lot more than I would have ever thought. It was really back then a kind of French opinion to think that the black zero, you know, having a balanced budget is not an absolute necessity. And now it's kind of mainstream and even a bit boring. So I think that has moved a lot. I mean, one thing that I do find quite remarkable is that with the CDU, CSU, with the Conservatives, I always, I, I almost wonder whether it's kind of like a backlash at the moment because, you know, they remain very staunchly kind of on the line that we need a black zero, we need to get back to that, we need to maybe even tighten the fiscal rules for Europe. It doesn't really seem like they're kind of on that train yet. The other parties also don't necessarily agree on what the way forward is. Lots of disagreement, especially when whether you should try and reform the constitution right now or not, or also in what way, but everybody seems to be kind of engaged in the debate. You also saw it a little bit in the Conservative Party when the head of the Chancellery made a suggestion in, in January to kind of delay the return to the debt break, but it seems a bit dead right now. And Friedrich Merz, who is like the guy who who's you know seems to be responsible for, for finance and the economy and, and Laschet's team, I mean, you know, he's very staunchly committed to to a black zero. So that's what I'm a little bit surprised by. I think Friedrich Merz is a great example of how the debate has changed. Because Friedrich Merz is a, was a young politician in the late 1990s in the Conservatives. And, well, he, he was representing the economic zeitgeist, the economic consensus at the time. And since he hasn't been in politics for 20 years, and now is reappearing sort of as a ghost from the past, you can really tell that what he says, I, I still remember the time, he says exactly what he says 20 years ago. There's no there's no difference, right? But now that you hear that, at the time it was perfectly fine. Everybody was saying roughly the same at the time. But now he seems to have fallen completely out of time. And, you know, economists are pushing back against what he's saying. And so, you know, I think how much Friedrich Merz seems to have fallen out of time really shows you how... He's sort of the, um, the control group. <laughs> but that's so true. That's so, so true. Um, so so I, think, I think that this is a sign uh, of how the debate has moved on. Of course, Friedrich Merz still has a large following. And that's what I meant. This 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 debate will take time to work its way through through the parties, through policy uh, through policymakers, uh, communities, and so forth. Just to conclude this, uh, let's come back to the the election and the aftermath. There's already a lot of speculation here in Berlin about 
the different possible coalitions after the election and who might take which ministries and so forth. And I'd like to ask you both as economists, in the context of these ongoing debates, these bigger issues, how important do you think those things are? How important, for example, is it which party or what sort of politician holds the finance ministry? How important is it who who's in the chancellery and their own personal economic instincts? Or how much do you think this is just a case of a kind of a gradually shifting zeitgeist above and beyond party political differences? You know, famously in 2017, Emmanuel Macron said, oh, if the FDP end up in government, I'm dead because they'll destroy all of my Eurozone reform ideas. And I just wonder, I mean, how much do you think those those differences do matter or how much do you think they're just overblown by the political village? I, I do think that they matter quite a lot. I'm not sure whether it's, you know, just who's got which ministry. I think it really depends a lot on the coalition agreement because, you know, German, Germans like contracts and they like to go by their rules. And so what I've seen from working in government, it's really kind of, you know, you work off the coalition agreement. So I think that's what really what matters and what's in there. Maybe who the finance minister is. There will still be constraints on that, but there will obviously be a huge difference I think, between a liberal finance minister or, you know, kind of a liberal kind of imprint on on fiscal policy and one that's more directed by the Greens and the Social Democrats, there the difference will be a little bit smaller, I reckon. I agree. But I think it's, uh, there is a, there is a strong influence of the, of the consensus and the zeitgeist on, on what German politicians will decide to do in the end. So I think that the question is which, which side will push that side guys that consensus a bit further or push harder um, um, for, for sort of a for example a progressive spending agenda why i'm a bit skeptical of how big the difference will be is is that we will have to form a coalition across the aisle and the party that has to be tempted to jump across the aisle be it the greens joining the christian democrats and the free democrats in the sort of jamaica coalition as we call it or the other way around uh, the free democrats uh, joining the social democrats and the greens these parties will demand a very high price for that. And so, for example, the Free Democrats, Macron famously said he would be dead if they joined the, if they joined the government. If they joined the, the Social Democrats and the Greens for a traffic light coalition, as we call it, then the Free Democrats will, will, will demand a price in terms of, for example, the finance ministry or, you know, continuation of the debt break or tax cuts for the rich. So, so, you know, this is, this is why I'm a bit skeptical. And on the other side, if the CDU and the FDP want to tempt the Greens to join them in a coalition, they need to offer the Greens quite a lot. And that will probably be, considering the preferences of the Greens, an investment agenda on climate change. And so I'm, I'm not entirely sure to whether, whether the difference will be will be that big after the coalition negotiations are over. But overall, I would think that, of course, it, it does matter who's the finance minister and particularly who's the chancellor to push also public opinion in a certain direction. Let me just maybe disagree with you a little bit. Actually, I guess on, on the outcome, maybe I agree that it might not be that different in a way, but I think it's much more because of realpolitik than because of zeitgeist. Because what is quite interesting that, you know, if you talk about the three parties that would be in a traffic light coalition, so the Social Democrats, the Greens and the Free Democrats, they are actually campaigning in a very different way when it comes to finances. So the Greens have made reforming the fiscal rules or fiscal rule in Germany a centerpiece of their campaign. The Social Democrats rather not talk about it that much. And the Free Democrats actually are more kind of and, and you know, go in the direction of the conservatives saying, 
you know, we've got to um, get back that back to, to 60%. We have to have a black zero. So actually communication is very different. I think where they will probably come together is they all have some election promises to fulfill. No one can afford to not do anything on climate. So they have some very real needs for money, but they'll probably try and communicate it in quite a different way to their specific audiences. No, I think I think we agree on that. Yes, absolutely. Um, the, the the style of communication and how they how they also you know help shape public opinion is very different. But if you if you think about, for example, the reform of Germany's fiscal rules, if the Christian Democrats are in opposition, right, then any reform of the of of the fiscal rules is out of the question, because the CDU will never agree to any any reform. And without the CDU, you in without the CDU in, in in both houses of parliament, you cannot change the constitution anyway. So that's why I'm that's why I'm a bit a bit hesitant to say well with the social democrats in charge we will we will finally have a sort of progressive spending agenda because there is a is a strong element of you know the the, the coalition negotiations uh, being dominated in some part at least by the free democrats to secure their consent to the coalition and the fiscal rules in the constitution that can only be changed with 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 uh, super majorities in both houses of parliament so that's why I'm a bit a, a bit hesitant to 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 say that the, you know in the actual outcome will be a much more progressive spending agenda. But you know, since the zeitgeist is moving, is I think uh, there will be some movement in that direction. Just to say, because I think this is important, you can have a progressive spending agenda in in Germany without having a constitutional reform. Would be nicer, um, but I think it's very very possible. So there, there, I think we're we're at a formula that sounds something like zeitgeist plus realpolitik. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> okay. Well, on, on those two brilliantly German terms, I think it's a good place to, to, to finish this. And I'd just like to say thank you very much indeed to both of you for this conversation. We might even need to come back to this, 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 this same grouping to see how things have shaken out by the end of the year and see what the coalition deal looks like and, and what you both make of it. But for now, thank you very much indeed. Philippa Ziegel-Gleckner of Dezernat Zukunft. Thank you very much. Thank you. And Christian Odendahl of the Centre for European Reform. Thank you very much for joining us. Cheers. Thank you. That's it for this episode. I'll be back in two weeks for our next instalment of Germany Elects. And there'll be another regular episode of World Review with more on the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan on Friday. You've been listening to Germany Elects, a special World Review pop-up podcast from the New Statesman. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. You can read all of our German election coverage, including our poll tracker and my profile of Olaf Scholz at newstatesman.com slash Germany, and follow me on Twitter at Jeremy Cliff. This podcast was produced by Adrian Bradley. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. 
follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.